Welcome to The Streets Are Planning. This is your host, Jay Ruffin, and I'm glad to be with you today. We have a wonderful, wonderful guest, um, and we're going to give her the opportunity to kind of introduce herself. Listen, this is a, a conversation that's been in the making for some time. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about environmental justice issues and, and food security. We know how important these issues are, and I love to have people on the show who have been on the ground in neighborhoods, working with residents, ensuring that folks are represented at the table and also ensuring that, that folks get the resources and things that they need to be able to improve their lives. Um, so again, we're gonna, we're gonna start off, you know, let the folks know where you're from. Let the folks know your name and where you're from. Hey, hey, hey. So my name is Alondra Alvizo on the streets. They know me as Vizo. Um, it comes from my last name, but that's really what a lot of people call me. Um, I'm originally from Mexico. So I was born in Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. Um, and then I, I immigrated to Detroit when I was four. So I'm about to turn 25 this year. So that's almost whew, 20 years ago, you know, so whole life here for sure. Gotcha. So Southwest raised. Southwest raised, represented Southwest Detroit. And, uh, you know, the, the one thing that we've been talking to a lot of our guests that have come on the show is, you know, initially, how did you get interested or involved in the built environment and urban planning in particular? And, and you know, what were your initial passions that brought you into the field? Yeah, so let's see, planning in specifically, I got involved in planning. Um, I, I always think things happen for a reason. So I was originally involved in agriculture and agricultural work. And then around my senior year, I wanna say in undergrad, I ended up taking an internship with the Center for Community and Economic Development at MSU. Um, and I mean, the work that they were doing, I didn't know they were planners. Like, I mean, the study of domicology by Dr. Rex Lamore, like that, you know, was huge for me. And I was like, wait, you mean a you, you're studying a concept that you can charge people, like the theory of charging people money up front for the restoration and rehabilitation costs that might happen a hundred years after you built the building. Like that's huge. Like, why are we not doing that? You can fund, use that money to do something else. And so that's kind of how I got into planning. Um, I wanted to, I think like after undergrad, I wanted to do like economic, um, agricultural economics and it just was a lot of work to try to get into a grad program that worked like that. And so I took a year off and I was like, you know, let me really figure out what I wanted to do. And I got into, I started working for a nonprofit in Southwest. I was working for Southwest Detroit Environmental Vision. And I was their director of youth and community engagement. And so I was door knocking, canvassing, I was farming, I was, you know, going to city council meetings, advocating for all the environmental side of stuff. And I realized that it was integrated. Like what my passion is really like food and I wanna help people find answers, right? And that's like a very broad life mission to have um, because some people spend a whole lifetime trying to answer one question, right? And I, I think that's really what my lifetime has become. Um, so I don't really ask so much the, the, the why things happen the way they do because they just do, but the how is my lifetime. Like how they happen and how we can change them from happening or how we can uplift the right things to happen um, and whatever right looks like for different people. I think that's really what my lifetime is. So working on the, on the ground, you know, 
grassroots movements for environmental justice, food security, um, and then realizing we ended up doing a lot of blight removal initiatives. I got tired of painting over the same fences. So we would like do like anti-graffiti stuff. And then I just realized that, you know, the same things that, things that brown and black folk were getting criminalized for, you know, graffiti specifically, um, are now like hot and trending and people get paid $20,000 to like paint them downtown. And I'm like, that's wild. <laughs> like, you know, I got cousins in jail still. Like that's, that's real wild. And so um, I decided to kind of work with local talent and local business owners and, and work with different city programs and saying like, is there a way that we can get young artists who are, you know, tagging and say, hey, if I gave you a wall, and I mean like literally a viaduct, a wall, somebody's backyard, if I could canvas and knock on people's backyard, knock on people's doors and say, hey, what if we made a mural using the back of your fence since it faces the street. Like, can we, you know, if it has graffiti on it, we can clean up the alley, we can make the mural. What do you say? You don't have to pay anything. Like, can we do it? They're like, as long as it's not an inappropriate design, you know, and, and it worked out. It worked out really well. We had, um, so that's what we ended up doing. We did a lot of like blight removal initiatives. And so that's like a long-winded answer to your question, but it, it was all integrated. It was, you know, the mural work, it was the built environment, but also feeding people. And like, if people don't have their basic needs met, they don't want to participate in anything else. Like, you don't feel like you belong to a community when you don't have your basic needs met. So ensuring, you know, food security allowed for people to come and volunteer and then, you know, come and clean up their neighborhoods and then come to the, like, then we can mobilize into a city council meeting. And now it's not just, oh, come and hold these people accountable. It's like, hey, remember when we cleaned up your backyard? We don't really got the money to do it every year. So you might want to go to city council and tell them that they can't be leaving this stuff in the alley, you know, like that kind of movement. So that's how I got into the planning work. Yeah, you know, that's that's a that's a really awesome way to, to get involved in this discussion because a lot of folks, you know, come from it from, you know, uh, that I've talked to is like an education standpoint uh, was was their trigger to get, you know, more knowledgeable uh, blight and, you know, community development, things like that. Um, but I think that the what's what's talked about a lot less in in planning that I think needs to be raised up a whole lot more is the the issue around food security and 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 the tie with environmental justice. And so a lot of your work you know, that I'm familiar with. And I think, you know, for folks who are uh, listening to the show, make sure that, you you know, we're going to Google the name and, and uh, we'll, we'll share like the, the social media and all of that um, at the end. But, but I, I think that the, the work around uh, the Southwest environmental vision, you know, where it was a, a combination of like food security, but then also utilizing vacant land um, is, is something that, you know, I love to see in neighborhoods. Um, can you kind of talk about that work and how that work started and, and what was the reception of the neighborhood uh, dur during your time there? Yeah, so a lot of this work um, predated me. And so what I know was, you know, the Southwest Detroit Environmental Vision partners really closely with uh, the Ideal Group because we work out of their, well, we used to work out of their property um, and they own the garden. So what happened was the community got together and they're like, you know, there's this, brownfield behind or like um, us next to the ideal group building and they were like you know it's a brownfield like can we fix it up you know it's really dangerous so it got transformed into a park and then the you know the community came you know people were putting things in trash bags and really like it was a community effort to clean up that brownfield and and then you know they capped it and they were using it as a park and then the community came forward and was like hey we really want to grow vegetables can we grow that here <laughs> and people were like oh it's a brownfield let's not let, let, mm. 
let's see how we do that. You know, it wasn't a no. And I think that that's something really unique to Detroit, right? It's, uh, there's a lot of ways that Detroit as a people move. And I always say that, right? Like Detroit is not just a place, it's a people. And there's, there's a way that Detroiters move that the answer is never no, it's just not right now. Right. And so like, that's what happened. It was like, not right now. Um, How can we? And so through a lot of collaboration, um, SDV worked with Ideal Group um, and General Motors and General Motors had these um, these shipping containers. So like that's what we use as well, what we used as raised beds. Um, those shipping containers shipped auto parts overseas. And so what ended up happening was they would just go to the landfill. So people at GM and their sustainability people were like, well, we spent a lot of money disposing of this. Like, do we all want them? And we were like, yeah, because we we farmed on concrete. Like we had asked, we had a, a one acre paved lot. And instead of like uprooting all of that and fit, finding the money and like Detroiters are resourceful. And so instead, um, Sarah Clark, uh, planner, landscape designer, awesome woman. <laughs> uh, she, that was her baby, you know, like working with the community and really like uprooted, um, just leveraging a lot of partnerships and what resources were available. And so that's what happened. We, we farmed on concrete using these raised bed shipping containers. And not only did we do that at STV, Sarah worked with different farmers across the city. I think like at one point it was 22 farms, I want to say, or 22 gardens to replicate the model. So if you, if you could find a way to haul them, cause they're heavy, like, if you could find a way to haul them, like they were free. And so we were working with GM and trying to like create vacant land or blighted land into productive food security um, spaces. And what's really cool about SDV specifically too, was that there was a point where we would let, we would, we would allow for community members to, um, and I haven't been there in about almost, it's going to be two years this year. So I don't know, things might've moved around a little bit, but um one thing that I thought was really unique was that they work with neighbors to grow different types of seeds that they had from their native communities. So like people who were like, oh, you know, I have this specific type of tomato or this specific type of sage, like they, they allowed volunteers to come in and cultivate that. Of course, you know, making sure the seed was something appropriate, but, but really like have representation in, in how we grow our own food, because you have to think that food is also a cultural thing. It's how we, identify culturally it's how we communicate culturally you know like I you know I remember growing up I don't really remember my mom apologizing much but there was a lot of food whatever you know she thought she was wrong <laughs> so, so that's really what that is the forgiveness right there <laughs> you know that's, that's the way we do it it's like um are you hungry <laughs> like, I got you. I, got you I made a plate for you sitting there in the kitchen don't you? <laughs> So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's cultural, right? Like what we consume. I remember that when I went to state, I was very sad that there wasn't a market where I could buy the type of ingredients that I was so used to in Southwest. I, there's so many things I just took for granted. Like I didn't know that tortillas weren't readily available at every single like supermarket. But growing up in Southwest, you're like, I wish I would go somewhere and they wouldn't have tortillas. Like you look at somebody crazy. Facts. <laughs> So it was that that was like a real cultural shock. And so I say all that to say that it was really cool. We were able to do in South in Southwest, especially at SDB was leverage um, community. The community felt like that was their garden as well. And it was, you know, certain Absolutely. people we had like garden godmothers. Um, and so people would come in and volunteer. We had people that 
ran the garden on Saturdays, like for free as volunteers. And so they had keys and they had access to the space further than like just your typical nine to five hours or your call in advance. You know, I know that COVID changed all of that and now there's more protocols, but it was what it built over the years. It built a sense of community, a sense of resiliency um, and a sense of ownership. It's like, this is our garden. We grow food here. We can also come and harvest here. (laughs) And all of that was free. And so when you have a family of four, when you are unemployed, when you are an immigrant, when you are in a minority group and you're struggling to meet your basic needs, it feels so great, you know, because we lived it. I was an immigrant, right? And so we, we lived, it feels good to be able to access the food that you want to eat and the food that you want to consume in a way that's healthy and affordable because those things don't always intersect. Sometimes availability and affordability are very different. Um, and accessibility as well, right? I mean, so so one of the things that that I love that you mentioned was folks had the ability to go and work and and put in like what they wanted and and were able to harvest what they what they wanted and needed, um, and having that access at all times where it's a it really truly is a community uh, space, right? I mean, oftentimes there are spaces that are created in neighborhoods. And it's like, well, the city runs this, so, you know, or this organization runs this, and it's only open from nine to five, right? <laughs> like, or it's open from, you know, only during the weekdays and all those, those things. But, you know, true community access means that those folks who are responsible stewards of the space uh, have access whenever they, they have the time, right? And so, uh, you know, so that's a, that's a huge piece that I want to make sure that folks who are listening um, take with them, um, along with all the, the you know, the, the rest of the comment. But I think, accessibility, affordability, and ensuring that the, the whatever is grown is, is culturally relevant, um, you know, for, or, or it's like it's something that's needed. Because look, where I grew up, you know, Brussels sprouts came to the table very, very rarely, you know what I'm saying? So it's not something I'm looking to like have at my table. But, you know, there are other folks in other cultures that like, look, Br- Brussels sprouts is a part of like what we do. We need that as a greenery. You know what I mean? And so I think that's a major, major component to, uh, to, to having that food security and access moving forward. So as you transition with that work, um, what were some of the things that, you know, going into the agricultural space that you had as, uh, you know, kind of in the back of your mind and kind of growing up in a space of what you, you thought might have been issues or you thought would have been uh, some of the challenges that you saw versus what you actually um, saw when you started working with community and, and working in, in the agricultural space? Yeah, so that transition was was interesting because I've always seen my work as very intersectional. So like you can't even begin to understand agriculture until you understand the trauma around agriculture from slavery to the Bracero program through like, you know, I'm Mexican. And so when you think of that, you're always like, oh, so we weren't good enough to keep our own land in Texas, but we were good enough to ship us over here when you needed labor because people were on strike. But then we weren't good enough to get papers either. Like we weren't good enough to get legal. Like you, So there's a lot of trauma around agricultural work. Um, and there's a lot of, of um, even though there's power in healing it through, through land restoration and through really um, understanding what ties us to the land, I think that I've met very, very few people of color who have tried to grow something and failed. Like, it, and, it, and it just shows you um, the, the discipline behind like our traumas, right? So being able to say what you put in is what you get out. If you give plants a little bit of love, a little bit of light, a little bit 
of time and you focus on what they need, um, you can grow almost anything. And I think like there's people who overwater an aloe plant and they're like, why did my plant die? And I was like, giving more than what's needed is also bad. And I think there's so many lessons to agriculture, right? Like a lot of times we're like, oh, we have to give and give and give. And we live in this capitalist buying that tells us like you, you have to constantly be productive, constantly be working, constantly be producing. But also life is production. If you make time for your life to exist and if you make time to cultivate agricultural products or cultivate value-added products or cultivate just your relationship with the land and what that means to you and defining those things, um, you develop a better quality of life and you're more active and participating in the life that you're living. And I think that a lot of times people see agriculture as this like distant thing, like some farmer in California, like got this orange and it traveled all the way to me and like Kroger somehow took ownership of that. But there's, there's a difference in what, like how you as an individual can interact with that. You know, I've seen kids grow tomatoes. I've had interns every summer when I was working at STV and people were like, Oh, pickles grow on vines. Like cucumbers grow on the ground. Cucumbers don't grow on trees. Like I had a child ask me that. And I was like, you're like 15 dude. Like, (laughs) But, you know, you can't make no one feel bad. But the point is, like, you don't know. None of us are born knowing. And somewhere along the line, we have to learn. And I think it's one of the most basic life skills to have is like around agriculture and and understanding. Understanding that you will never go hungry if you know how to farm. Like if you know how to cultivate anything, you that's your first step to self-sufficiency. A lot of people think like I turn 18. I got my driver's license. I'm on my way. And it's, it's not the case, you know, like the only way you get there is by being self-sufficient. Do I have the skills to rely on myself if I couldn't go to the store, if I couldn't travel? And like, we're seeing it now with, with COVID-19, right? Like you're seeing like, why is this so expensive? Why can't I do that? And I'm like, you better put some seedlings on the windowsill. You better look at the onion is growing, put it in some water, let it get some roots, throw it in some soil, you know? Right. Get, your, get your herbs popping, you know. <laughs> get your oregano going. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, that's that's real. So I don't know if that necessarily answered the question. But. No, it, it it does. It does answer the question because I I think for 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 me it's it's how you know folks get connected to the work in a lot of different ways, and I think with these on the agricultural side, people forget what exactly what you spoke about is like. It's a, it's an arm of self-sufficiency and any movement requires some self-sufficiency to be built into it where you can and supports that are around that. Um, and so so for for that type of work to be taking place in, in Southwest and you're raising the, uh, the the knowledge level and you're raising the, the hard work that folks are, are on the ground doing every day is something that is 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 important to me. Um, and it's especially, you know, just really quickly, it's it's. In my household, you know, my, my wife, uh, who's also Mexican-American, is, is, you know, her family was, uh, you know, came to America and, um, you know, or, or I'm sorry, not came to America, but came to Michigan in a way where her father worked in worked at GM. But a lot of what they had done prior to that and then after that was working in the fields. And, and so when it's a part of, of your, your life, 
there's a different understanding of what self-sufficiency means. And there's a different understanding of, of like how food actually gets to the table. Because for me, I was that kid, like, look, the, the food showed up at the table out of a can, out of a jar, you know, or whatever. Uh, you know, my mom's went to the store down the street and that's how it, it got there. But understanding that there's a whole ecosystem out there. I mean, you know, there's a whole ecosystem and it's closer than folks think. It's not California. It's, it's Pigeon, Michigan. It's Dwajiak, Michigan. It's, it's, it's Southwest, uh, you know, Benton Harbor area. It's, it's, and it's, it's Yale, Michigan, Northern Michigan, all of these places that are super close to us. And it impacts what we can purchase throughout the year, right? So that economic development side that, you, that you're working on, is, is that a lot of like what your, your, um, your work is kind of centered around? Are you, have you tried to understand better the, the systems and how it gets to you know, farm the table, so to speak? Um, or is it more on the advocacy side? What, what has been your, you know, your, your area where you feel like, or is it all, all of the above of where you feel most comfortable? Uh, all of the above. The answer is everything. Gotcha. Uh, all intersectional. Um, but no. So my current role is with um, MSU Product Center. So I'm the Detroit-based extension educator and innovation counselor. And that's like a super big fancy title. But all it means is that I do programming, um, especially serving bilingual audiences and underserved populations and demographics um, around food and farm business education. So that's like one thing, one component to my job. The other component is really, like you said, understanding the regional food systems and really uplifting and supporting local food businesses through different partnerships like the Michigan Good Food Fund, um, ensuring that healthy food uh, gets economic opportunity in Michigan. And then like the other third of my job is particularly based around providing one-on-one -on -one support for food and farm entrepreneurs in the Detroit metro area. A lot of my clients are in Detroit, but I do service three different counties. So Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb. Um, most of my clients are in Wayne, almost all of them, but I do have a couple that, you know, move around. And so a lot of what I do is help people understand what you need to do in order to start a food-based business, um, a licensed food-based business in Michigan. And also, like, if you want to be a farmer, like, you need to know what you're signing up for. Because a lot of people think it's, it's cute. It's like, oh, look, I grew a little baby tomato. I take it to the Eastern Market. And you're like, um, you know, the booths at Eastern Market are expensive. <laughs> you also have to, like, how much are you spending? And they're like, what? No, I just put my tomato plants here and I put my kale over there. And then I, I, I sell it in a, in a box. I just find a box in my house and I put it on. And I'm like... No, 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 no. We got to know what crops you're producing, how much each crop is going to be worth. Like you got to get good at forecasting projections. You need Excel sheets, man. Like, so that's that's a lot of like my workload, too, is really helping people, um, especially uh, people of color and underserved audiences really get the tools and, and the necessary um, guidance to, to launch businesses and focus on developing, you know, the economy of Southeast Michigan. But it's not just I don't ever, you know, I, I call myself the devil's advocate, right? Because I, I don't want to be your dream crusher, but I don't want to send you into $100,000 worth of debt because you didn't business plan appropriately. Like if the numbers don't make sense, I'm going to tell you they don't make sense. If you so choose to throw yourself into debt for numbers that don't make sense, you know, that's, that's a personal choice. But I think we should all, we're at this point in our lives where we need to make informed decisions. You need, and you don't know what you don't know. And I think that's why the MSU Product Center is like a really great resource, you know, shameless plug for $50, a one-time fee of $50, you know, you get a limited counseling with me, hello, 
Hey, <laughs> you better sign up. <laughs> you know, listen, we're going to attach the link or something. But no, no, it's real. Like, you know, for 50 bucks, you can save thousands later on. And that goes for any food product. Like if you want to do a barbecue sauce, if you want to do some some shelf stable products, or also if you want to do a baked good, or if you want to do some teas, or if you're like, I'm thinking about starting a backyard farm, like, what would that look like? I'm gonna say, well, you know, what's your irrigation like? Like, let's start talking. And you know, water is a big thing in the city of Detroit. So it's it's expensive. Um, But yeah, that's, that's what I do with my day job. And then I'm also in school, you know, let's go masters of urban planning at Wayne State. Yo, uh, y'all out here, y'all out here. Listen, it's, 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 uh, your commitment to your community is, is obvious, um, and, and all that you do. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's something that, that I've admired for a little while. I know I was talking to you before the show was like, yo, I, I saw you when you gave your graduation speech at MSU and, and all of these things. And, and so when I, when I see people who are, are attached to the work, in, in a real organic way. And it's, and it's a, it's coming from a, a, a passion. Um, you know, I gotta, I feel like I gotta, I'm like drawn to those people. So, you know, with, with, with the work that you've been, you've been doing in the space that you have uh, currently with MSU uh, extension, you know, what have been some of the things that, you know, if we, if you had the, uh, 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 you know, the, the big seat, so to speak, like you, you sitting in there, you got all the money, you about to make decisions, um, what would be some like, you know, the top three issues that you would work on uh, resolving, whether it's here in, in Michigan, Southwest or, or from an from an agricultural standpoint across the country? Um, I think it would definitely be I'd invest some some dollars into marketing, um, accessible marketing. And what I mean by that is like I don't want the big lingo. I want people to understand what the flyer says. <laughs> Um, in multiple languages. That's what, that's what I want. Um, because I think we're a hidden gem, you know, I think extension for a long time has been thought of as like this rural resource, you know, like legislators, people that fund us at the state and, you know, um, at the federal levels, they're like, oh, extension works with farmers. Extension does curriculum around rural development. But I don't always see that, like, a lot of what we do is open to everyone. Like we don't have programs that are like this, you have to meet this criteria that like every program is open to everyone. And I think that if we um, demystified a little bit um, the wording on certain things, like it would really help people know, like this is a space for you to learn. This is research-based. We are the connector between like research-based evidence, proven things, <laughs> topics, and connecting you to like, what, how does that apply to like on the ground work? Right. And then connecting what you need, because a lot of times, you know, people come to us for we have an ask an expert program online. You know, you can ask a question and then get an answer from an expert with an extension. And so, like, that's awesome, you know, but I think a lot of times people don't really know what all we do. So I I would really focus on like marketing and, and getting our message wider spread, but also accessible, right? Like we got really cool billboards and and other things we do, but I'm just like, you got to see yourself in the billboard. You got to look like you look, you know? And and if you don't get that, you just don't get that. But (laughs) but that's real. You know, you got to see myself. Um, And and that's important too, because people go and get services where they feel that people that look like them will help them. It's like a social behavior. It's how we move. It's like, oh, you know, I'm kind of scared to ask this person because I don't know what they'll think. Well, like, oh, that person's wearing Air Force Ones. I know I can ask them. Like, <laughs> like that's real. Cultural cues are real. And I think that the more we try to go like, oh, no, that's not a thing. We're wasting time. 
and people need resources now. They needed them years before the pandemic. They needed them, you know, and they still need them even more now. And so that that would be some of the things I would invest money in. The other two is like building the pipeline, man. Uh, we we need to get diverse. Like we need our money to match our diversity commitments, you know. And I'm not saying they don't at this time. I'm just saying like as we look through budgets, there has to be a set amount of dollars that go like we need to build a pipeline of. Um, BIPOCs and, and make sure that we're, we're bringing in people that look like that are from different backgrounds. We need to be making decisions that are representative to the population and demographic of the state, not just, oh, this looks representative here. This looks, we need to match parity across all programs. And so we do what we can. And I, I won't sit here and badmouth the great organization because we, we really do great work. Um, but yeah, my money would be in, in really investing and in building the next generation because um, I'm, I'm one of the youngest people in extension. Like, and I was the extension baby. I started working for, I entered for extension. Um, my, at the end of my freshman year, that summer, I interned for extension. And then the work that I did during those three months got me a job through work study for the next, the whole time I was at MSU. And then I graduated and I was like, I'm going to Detroit. Are y'all hiring down there? And they were like, no, but we got openings here. And I was like, sayonara, let me know when you're hiring in Detroit. Um, and, you know, and when they had an opening in Detroit, it, it just worked out. It was really what I what I felt my background was in and, and what and, and I've been able to do some really great work and develop really great partnerships with Detroit based um, institutions as well. But. But I think that's really what we have to look at. It's like we shouldn't there shouldn't be a reason why like some positions stay open for too long. It's like, oh, we don't have a person and we just we couldn't find one. We didn't like the applicants. It's like diversify your applicant pool. You better start reaching out to other people, maybe lower a requirement or two. But you never know. You know, sometimes people are like masters required. But it's like maybe the on the ground expertise also leverages. So I think I think that's one thing I well, I don't know. I think those are three things, but yeah, those are like my top priorities. <laughs> I got you. I got you. I, I do think that the, on the last piece, you know, um, that this, this idea of what experience is, uh, you know, versus expertise, um, you know, and that kind of conversation in, in across urban planning um, and the built environment fields is, is one that needs to be adjusted um, because I, I think someone who, it has grown up in a neighborhood and experienced these things firsthand and are currently experiencing, you know, the lack of food security or the, the you know, environmental impacts are hitting them hard or their family uh, through asthma and through other illnesses and things like that. Um, there's a real sense of, of what it really takes to navigate that space currently. And that, that experience should be just as valued as somebody who went and got a four-year degree, but is is detached from the actual experience on the ground. Um, you can work hand in hand, right? Like, I mean, it's it's the a mutual respect of of what actually is is on the ground and within those various neighborhoods, and then bringing your expertise to listen first as an active listener and see how you can use your expertise to benefit what the folks want on the ground. That's that's what expertise is to me. Um, yeah, and that's what it should be. You know, expertise is something that gets, it's, it's like the vicious cycle of getting a job. It's like, you need experience to get a job, but you also need to get a job to get experience. So like, where do you want me to start? Do, do I, how do I get experience? <laughs> right. And they're like, oh, but volunteer. And I'm like, right, but I have bills. Like I got, I got like $0 and zero cents and I need to pay unlimited amount of money for cost of living. And then also I have to find a way in there to be like a good Samaritan and like uphold my values and, you know, do all of that. And I think that a lot of times, you know, 
um, you, like you said, that, ex- that experience, um, a lot of things look good on paper. Oh my God. I've seen a lot of grant applications, you know, they, they look good on paper. And then you get into if someone who doesn't know how to execute that work, they're like, we will recruit a hundred volunteers. And I'm like, well, using what? Instagram? Okay. I would I would love to see how your organization at this stage of development is going to recruit a hundred volunteers to work for free for three days um, to, to, to execute this. And then I'm like, oh well, we we have the, the analytics that say people clicked on this. And I'm like, okay, there's a difference between I clicked on this post because I like the flyer. Versus I showed up at eight in the morning to work for eight hours for free. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Look, that's real. likes, likes ain't money and likes ain't action, right? Like it's not an actual, I'm showing up to do, this is what's going to happen. Um, I love what you have in your Twitter bio. It's like retweet is not an agreement. <laughs> yeah. Retweet is not, it's like, yo, just cause I'm, I'm sharing information. Like, I don't know if it's accurate or like if I'm supportive of it yet, but listen, this is, this is something that should be up for community debate right like so. I'm uplifting a voice dang I that's it you know the voice absolutely absolutely take the social media career a little too serious you know everybody's an influencer nowadays and I'm like what are you influencing right and then they don't know how to answer the question and I'm like you know and that's that's really you know to get on the environmental point um you know what Greta's doing right like she's a kid man like that's real and people tell you like I know that in my experience and working with some city folk you know growing up in the city, I had a lot of questions that people in these positions of power couldn't answer. And I was like, you know, why are we not doing more with Rouge Park? Went to a city council meeting, like, hi, I live here. And uh, I was told I had to come here and ask you. So why are we not doing more with Rouge Park? And they're like, well, you know, it's a lot of factors. You got to go to school. So then I went to school. Then I came back after doing a research project. I'm like, hey, here's the findings. Why are we not doing more? And they're like, oh, well, you know, you need to go into planning and you got to get a master's. And I'm like, that's just, and here's this kid, you know, and like, more power to her, but she's speaking on real things. And she's not the only like young activist, right? So when we think of environmental justice, we're like, oh, you know, people should have the right to clean water, clean air. And like your way of life is shaped by your environment. There should be some, some of my kids, you know, when I was working at STV, we took, uh, we got some grand dollars and we were able to take the kids up north on a camping trip. And they were like, Yo, this looks like a Dell background, like the Dell desktop background. Like this area is like, he said, my airline acted up since I was here. And I'm like, some kids just don't know that they're not supposed to be breathing in terrible air. Mm. When you live somewhere your whole life, when you don't know different, there's, you know, I had a, I had a tour guide once. I took a farm tour that told me there's a lot of Michigan that's not your Michigan. And it stuck with me, you know, years later. And I'm like, dang, like, that's true. Like, I love Detroit. I love our city. And we stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, there were people that did amazing things for us to be able to breathe cleaner air, right? Like the incinerator shut down and other things. But the reality is there's still a lot of young people growing up with this perception that how we live in Detroit and the kind of um, environmental racism that they experience is like a norm that they're going to grow up and go somewhere else and that they're going to experience the same things. And it's like, that's, there's different places and you feel different and your life looks different when you can afford your basic rights. And when you're not being poisoned by poor indoor and outdoor air quality, um, you know, you're, you were killing people's lives shortly, you know, and for what, and you have to really, I think this is where like the planning profession gets balanced, right? Because it's like, um, and we were talking a little bit about this sooner, which was, you know, you, when you work, in a position that serves the public, you owe 
your your development to the public. You work for the public. The public holds you accountable for what you do. And that's how it should be. And that's how it needs to be. And so anytime that that's threatened, that makes me very angry. And we've seen a lot of those instances very recently. And I'm like, y'all have to remember, y'all work for us. We put you in these offices. We're paying these taxes to fund your salary. Like, don't get it twisted. And I think that a lot of times people get into these positions with like director of, and you know, this, you know, whatever title or administrative, you know, hierarchy, whatever, man, at the end of the day, if you're being paid through taxes, you work for me because I pay my taxes. So you work for me and I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And that's, that's part of the environmental movement, right? It's leveraging the power you do have. Right. And I I think the, the, the piece that, you know, folks often kind of resist is, is, the conflict of, of being held accountable, right? Sometimes, I mean, I, I think one of the, the big things that I've, I've kind of championed on this show and talked to, um, you know, in, my, in my, my work experience and everything else is, you know, we're, we're actually coming into neighborhoods um, that have had experiences with the city or experiences with organizations um, that did not go well. And, and, you know, and have experienced traumas because of those types of things, right? Um, or the lack of engagement or haven't been engaged at all and just had things happen to them, right? Development happened to them. Changes in their neighborhood happened to them. Demolition and blight happened to them. And that's how folks, you know, on the ground receive those things when they're not in, involved and engaged in the process to develop the strategy of, of what they want their neighborhood to look like moving forward. As a, as a professional, it doesn't matter as much what I want a neighborhood to look like. It ain't my neighbor. Unless it's my neighborhood, I shouldn't be dictating what, that, what they look like. Now, what I should be dictating is, look, here are all the resources that are available right now. Here's how these resources work. How would you like these resources and technical assistance to work in partnership with you? Yeah, and it and seems simple. Oh, that's a very hard thing to do. But it's very hard (laughs) because everyone has an opinion, you know, and and these opinions are important. And there's also this, um, you know, I think one thing we're seeing with Detroit that's that's very unique is that all these development dollars were very focused on like the center. And you I mean, you drive through Detroit now and you're like downtown is booming and then two blocks into any neighborhood. And you're like, we. Um, you know, and there's, it's a challenge and there's things that are trying to get done. And, you know, I, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And I think that that's, that's really where like we come in as planners and, and we have to understand, I think it's so important to have people that are from where you're from, build the skill set and support those people to take on these roles. Cause a lot of times when you hire people, you can be the most experienced planner in the whole world. But if you put this planner who's not from here and doesn't want to move in that way, if they're like, I got all these degrees that tell me that I can move how I want to move. And I got all this experience. I got 30 years of doing this in neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood. But I live on the hills. You're not going to know what it's like to not have a vehicle and try to get to the grocery store. You're not going to know what it's like to not have heat in the winter or get your water cut off because that's not your reality. So now you're throwing in this big supermarket in the middle of my neighborhood. That's not what I want. I want you to fix these houses so that my kids ain't doing crack on the street. And that's real. And if you can't sit down and level with someone and say like, I understand your concern. I can empathize with that. That is not my lived experience. And I'm sorry that it had to be your lived experience. And this is coming from a place of empathy and not a place of like salvation complex. I don't need to save you. 
You've been resilient. You have withstood in this neighborhood. You have seen Detroit through the ups and the downs, and you've chosen to be here. And that kind of resiliency, that kind of Detroitness, is is everything. You know, you're not coming in here to tell me what we could be. I know what we could be. I've been living here as long as I've been living here. I know what we could be. I'd have lived through it. You know, and there's a lot of people in the neighborhoods like that. So it is. It's a. It's a very. Um, it's an intersectional passion. You cannot be passionate about planning. You cannot be passionate about economic development. You cannot be passionate about um, self-sufficiency and community revitalization if you don't begin with understanding the conditions that led to that, acknowledging the role that each institution played in why we're perceived the way we are in our profession. And then also just standing your ground and saying like, I have all this expertise and that means zero if I cannot sit here and level with a resident. And if you don't, if you can't humble yourself like that, you ain't got no business being in the planning profession. Speak on it. Speak on it. Speak on it. You <laughs> I know, said what I said. <laughs> she said what she said, and it's and it's and it, uh, you know I agree with that wholeheartedly. Is is folks coming to to planning from a lot of different walks of life, and they're all valid, but but they all must begin when you are in your professional capacity, um, as Alondra just said, is 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 active listening, and and empathy. Not sympathy, you know, because sympathy leads to like, like you said, that hero complex, like, all right, I'm going to save this neighborhood. It's all on my back. And it's like, well, listen, man, you, you only work on this project three times out of the week. Um, and these folks are living there every single day, 24 seven. Right. Uh, who should who should we be listening to most? Right. Um, and so I think the, the role that folks tend to forget about um, when it comes to planning is that our job essentially is like we, we can be very effective intersectional facilitators. And that's exactly what you're talking about, um, is, is utilizing our skills and abilities to be a, a great facilitator of conversation and a great facilitator of actual implementation, not just talking about it. We're going to put these plans together, but those plans must have, if they require resources, financial resources or technical resources, how do we get it done and how do we implement it in a way that is, is responsive to the needs of, of the communities we're serving. And so I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, you and I went through this conversation and the work that you're doing. Um, and hopefully, you know, we get an opportunity to work together in some kind of form or capacity moving forward is that it's good to count you in, in, in the group of planners and future planners um, who will be entering this field and taking on that challenge. Uh, with, with the level of empathy and, and understanding and experience that you have. So I just want to shout you out. I appreciate you. you and what you're bringing to the table. Uh, shout out to to the Wayne State uh, Urban Planning Program. Um, you know, I know a lot of y'all out here grinding and making it happen. Um, and, and also so I, shout out to the T-Rust Fellowship, you know, Transformative Research and Urban Sustainability Training. I mean, it's a great program. Um, I highly recommend that if you have a passion in any type of STEM-related uh, field, you, you really check out that program at Wayne State. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's a partnership with the National Science Foundation. Um, it's, it's, it's good, you know, and, and it provides a lot of these technical expertise that we're talking about, right? Like, how do you, um, you got to be a well-rounded person, you know, in any field, but specifically in like planning fields and, and research and development type of stuff. So, um, highly, highly recommend checking out the program. Really great program. For sure. For sure. I thank you for that. So, Moving forward, you know, folks, they've, they've heard you. Where can they find you on social media? Um, where can they learn more about your work? And, uh, you know, any final words that you might have? 
Yeah, awesome. So um, thanks so much for tuning in and checking us out. Um, I highly recommend that y'all follow me on Instagram um, at it's Vito. Um, that's I-T-S-V and then Victor I-Z-O. Um, I try to keep it simple. It's me. <laughs> you know, um, you can catch all types of stuff I do on there in my bio. And if you find any interest in anything else that I'm involved in, because I do wear multiple hats in the city. So um, you can get connected to all those through there. Um, my email is always open. So if you ever have anything you want to talk through, especially around planning, or I just love having these conversations, you know, now that Zoom is so normalized, you know, feel free to email me at albizoalandra at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. This was awesome. And always remember that, that most places are just places, but Detroit is a people. We move different. <laughs> Move different. I appreciate that. Thank you again for being on the show. Uh, we hope to have you on again in the future to talk about some of the other work that, uh, you know, that you've been involved in throughout the city and the things that are yet to come. So I, I appreciate you, Alondra. Um, thank you again. And everyone remember, anytime, anywhere, any place, the streets are planning.